This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run, and the sixth edition was just released, so please check that out. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views of our guests are not those of Wisdom Treats or Affiliates. Professor, we had a good start to the quarter and this week, uh, but all eyes were going to be on this jobs report, what it would mean for the Fed. How are you reacting? The market is we're talking here early, about an hour after the jobs report. What's your, your initial read of the uh, the report? Right. I, it was, well, on, on the numbers, it was almost exactly as expected. However, it disappointed the market in the following ways. Um, the participation rate went down, um, uh, and less people are in the labor force. The unemployment rate went down back to 6.5%, uh, excuse me, 3.5%, uh, and the U6 uh, broader unemployment rate jumped, uh, dropped to 6.7%. So uh, we're not getting that supply of workers that we hoped would dampen uh inflationary pressures uh however on the wage front we, we got uh, exactly what was expected only three tenths of a percent increase uh, uh month over month and five percent year over year um uh so it shows the job market is still very strong but it's not a leading indicator it's certainly not something that we should say oh my god that's where weakness would show we had a little bit of weakness on uh, the unemployment claims, but that was after a very strong week the week before. So we need we would need several more weak indicators to show a weakening. Uh, I really thought probably in the last week the most important uh, index was the the big drop in the jolts index and the job openings and uh, uh, labor turnover index, uh, which is something that Jay Powell has mentioned, which really does show a coo- some cooling. In the in the labor market, and also the ISM index, not so much on services, but on manufacturing, did definitely come in on the on the on the coolish uh, side. Um, uh, it, it, this this certainly isn't enough to change the trajectory of the Fed. Uh, the Fed will get uh, some more price reports. Will not get uh, a another employment report before it's a November second uh, decision. Um, I saw one one thing that I think is, is deserved mentioning, uh, and that is that yesterday Chris Waller uh, delivered a, a talk about uh, the current monetary policy. He's the uh, president, uh, uh, the representative um, uh, uh, on, on the FOMC from uh, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Uh, he actually, is the, he is the president, um, very well respected. And he is, uh, he was the first person to mention something that we have mentioned so many times on, on our program. And that is how lagged the housing data comes in. Um, that the big increases are, uh, are smooth. Um, they come in with a lag, uh, and therefore are going to feed into the, both the CPI and the PCE deflator for the next six months or more. However, I, I, I was disappointed that he didn't draw the obvious conclusion from that. Core inflation is going to look worse than it is. In fact, he talked about how much the other part of core inflation has to go down to offset this upward bias of what we've had. Um, and, and that, I think, is the wrong focus. The focus is we've had a lot more inflation than has been recorded, and we're going to record a lot more inflation than we're going to have. Uh, and so uh, looking at either the uh, uh, CPI or the core PCE, it's not going to give us an, an accurate indicator of inflation. Uh, and, and, and therefore, uh, you know, I was hoping he would comment on that and talk about other indicators that definitely show a softness. 
Um, uh, we, of course, uh, have also the two million barrel cut in uh, oil production from OPEC, which has firmed the oil prices. Um, uh, and we also have the a pretty unusual situation of uh, Biden going to uh, Venezuela to try to get oil um, at the same time that, uh, of course, the administration on record is very anti-oil in the U.S. These are not good uh, visuals uh, politically. Um, and this will also mean that oil uh, prices and, and gas prices will firm. I do not expect anything like what we had after uh, the Ukraine invasion, um, uh, where, of course, oil went to, you know, $120, 130 temporarily. Uh, I, I, you know, in the mar- it, it is firmed about, uh, you know, 5 to $10. And I expect it probably uh, uh, to stay uh, in, in that range in the future. But it means that the drop in, in certain gasoline prices is over, and we will see a little bit of a bump on the upside, not nothing what, what we saw uh, six months ago. We also have uh, increased risk from Ukraine, and it's because of the beating that the troops of Russia have been taking at the hands of the Ukraine military and uh, whether Putin will use uh, limited uh, nuclear weapons in that area is, is, is certainly has heightened concern. Uh, I still think it's against the odds, but I am not a political expert on, on that. That would certainly jolt the world economy and put extreme sanctions on, on, on that. I don't think it's going to lead to a wider, a wider war or NATO get to get involved. Uh, 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 I mean, a circling of forces and dominate headline dramatically uh, uh, if, if such an event will occur. So these risk factors are not surprised to see, you know, risk assets uh, basically off. We're going to be heading into earnings season next week. We have the consumer price index. We have the producer price index. Uh, we have retail sales. We have inflationary expectations. Um, uh, you know, all those will, of course, help uh, uh, shape uh, the views of uh, the, the market uh, uh, over the uh, coming weeks. Well, very good, uh, good comments there, Professor. I, I also saw a the, the, the few of the Waller headlines and then also Mester coming out saying we will not be cutting rates next year at all. So very determinative statement saying that they have this visibility into all of next year and saying we're sort of raising and holding. The other comment from Waller that, I, that people is going around social media is he's been t- he was talking about sort of the liquidity in the Treasury market and made a comment alluding to prices needing to adjust and, and make an analogy to like Halloween and saying – you know, you have all this uh, liquidity until October 31st, and there's no liquidity. And he's like, I'm not going to step in to solve that. Um, do you think they really do want a lot lower prices in the bond market? Is is that what he was trying to allude to? Or, or, or are people overreading into some of those comments? Uh, I think they may be overreading. I mean, he talked about how well-functioning the market is. They're really, yes, there are some stretches, and we have a widening of spreads. Which is going to slow activity because anything that's not prime now, super prime, is is costing even more as a result of that rate. So will hasten the downturn that we're happening. But we're nowhere near a Lehman moment, uh, you know, as mentioned with with the you know um, Credit Suisse or anything like that. And and he did emphasize we have tools to step in. So if something does happen, and I don't expect it to. I mean, the banks are. Uh, unbelievably well capitalized with trillions of dollars of excess reserves. And yeah, rates have gone up, but we, 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 we don't have that situation, um, that we, we, ha- that, that occurred in the UK, uh, because of a, uh, of a totally unexpected fiscal shock. That is not, uh, and that is not happening. Obviously, in one month, we're going to have the midterm elections and we'll see whether the Democrats will still control uh, both houses of Congress or, or not. But, uh, you know, certainly some of the recent developments have not been going in favor of the Democrats recently, which certainly increases the chances, um, which are already extremely high, that the House will turn Republican. So even if the Dems manage to keep uh, the Senate, um, and uh, which is nowhere near as certain, it was two to one odds a month ago. Now it's almost even money. Um uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, Biden can't get anything through without a, 
a total bipartisan uh, uh, movement uh, in that uh, in that direction. So, you know, that uh, these developments that are happening here will have political ramifications um, for the, uh, you know, as, as the first week of November, I guess it's November 8th for the election, November 2nd for the Fed. Um, there's 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 lots uh, that investors uh, can look forward to. Well, Professor, I know you've got some things for the weekend. Thanks for joining us for some comments. Uh, we look forward to getting your views as things evolve here in the markets, where things are going to go for next year. Uh, looking forward to get more of your takes uh, throughout this year. Thanks, Professor, for some comments to start the show. Thank you very much, Aaron. Uh, now I'm going to be happy to welcome today's guest. We're going to be talking with Jason Draho, who's Managing Director and Head of Asset Allocation for UBS Global Wealth Management. Jason, uh, welcome to Behind the Markets. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You know, on a day of a lot of red, um, we're going to be talking about one of your pieces that has maybe a little bit more optimistic tone um, in sort of the sea of red. I said a rose-colored glasses is one of the blog posts you've been writing. I, I found your your writings being alluded to in The Economist. Uh, it's a nice cover of what you've been writing about. Uh, we're going to talk to all your outlooks for the economy and what could go right for the economy. But maybe for our listeners, just give a little bit about yourself, the background. People probably know UBS, but talk about your role as head of asset allocation, the type of work you do, how you got to, to that seat before we get into the details. Uh, well, so in terms of my current role, you know, head of asset allocation, it may not be the most descriptive term, but really what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to do is look at you know the economy, the overall macro environment, and then think about, well, then how do you want to allocate across different asset classes? How do you want to construct portfolios? And there's different time dimensions as you're thinking about that. Certainly on a, on a more tactical basis, three, six, 12 months, you know, there's a lot of focus on that, maybe more focus sometimes than we should be spending. But there's also the element where, and, and probably what's most important for a lot of investors or most investors is their long-term allocation. We call it the strategic asset allocation where you're investing for the next five, 10 years. In some cases, you know, for our clients, we want them thinking 30-year horizons. Uh, and it does tie into, you know, what I think we'll, we'll touch on in terms of like, you know, a little more optimistic outlook because there is a lot of, at a minimum, uncertainty in the very near term of how things will play out. Certainly, you know, you know, given uh, you know, following Jerry's comments about like what the Fed might do, you know, risk of recession is certainly elevated. But if you kind of look through the next three, six, twelve months, there is certainly a scenario I think that gets underplayed about uh, you know, the, you know, the better environment. So that's I kind of try and think about all these things, both short term and long term, because this all matters in terms of of, of asset allocation. A little more of, I guess, about myself, um, you know, that, uh, you know, I've been at UBS for six years. Prior to that, I had been at, at Morgan Stanley, so doing macro strategy. But even prior to that, you know, I, I did a PhD in economics. So, um, you know, Jeremy's work I'm familiar with. And, you know, I remember I was a grad student at Yale and we used his you know, stocks for long run. Now, I think in sixth edition uh, yeah, as part of that. So thinking about long-term investing has been something that's really been on my mind for, you know, more than a couple of decades. Uh, and every now and then I, I do try and, and use some of that thinking uh, and you know, think kind of big picture, uh, you know, for for you know the macro developments and how that sort of flows into it. So it's part of day to day, but sometimes day to day gets consumed by a lot of you know the noise, and we try to think through the noise and look through the noise to think you know kind of big picture and you know a lot of you know kind of education and sort of experience. Hopefully, gives me some perspective to not be caught up in, in sort of the the whims from from news flow to actually think about structurally what's happening and, and what does this really mean for investors. Being at Yale, you had the potential to be influenced by the professor's uh, good friend Bob Schiller, uh, and and so interesting that we we I think we're talking about sort of a more optimistic take versus Bob's uh, irrational exuberance type type takes. Yeah, no, he was uh, he taught uh, my first year in graduate school in macroeconomics. I had a class with him. Um, you know, uh, he was already you know well known within academia, maybe not so much kind of the broader public. A very interesting, thoughtful thinker, very original thinker. So, you know, I think, you know, one of the things I, I remember you know, taking away from him is not just like the macroeconomics, but, you know, he always said, you know, if you ever have a good idea, it's good to get it out there as soon as possible because other people are thinking about it. So, you know, you know, again, the topic we'll kind of just today, it feels like people, I think it's a good idea. Uh, at least it's kind of worth discussing that maybe it doesn't kind of get highlighted as much as, as possible. But I think it's, he always sort of challenged conventional approaches. Uh, and so I always feel like, at least kind of, challenge kind of conventional wisdom or conventional thinking to at least force ourselves to think, are we missing something? Because, you know, you never want to um, you know, suffer from a lack of imagination because you never know, as we've learned over the past, let's say, 15 years and past few years, that things can happen in ways that you can't you know, predict easily. 
Yeah, so the dominating narrative today, um, and, and in particular a day like today, but you, you, even recently you had sort of Druckenmiller come out and a lot of press coming out, like 66 to 81. Maybe we're going to get a period where the market goes nowhere. Um, a lot of fears about that uh, is, is some of the commentaries from at least Druckenmiller said we was talking about that. Let, let's, let's get into your piece on the things that could go right for the economy. Um, and so one of your, your pieces um, sort of talked through 10 different ideas on, on a day of the employment report. I, I kind of want to start with one of the second ones you had listed on faster wage growth. Um, and we, we could, you could step back if you want to before I get into the individual pieces, but things that could go right for the economy, maybe frame the, the overall piece and then we can get into maybe the, the wage growth element of what might help support that. So the original piece uh, I published almost exactly a year ago, middle of October last year, and it was in the context where the talk of stagflation, inflation is being elevated, this could be much more persistent. You know, we were still using neo-transitory to describe inflation a year ago. People started to kind of question that. And pessimism was definitely rising. The original idea of the piece was to say, well, as we step back from, again, the, the very near term to think about structurally, are there these factors that are going on that, you know, from a long-term perspective, you know, are more optimistic then earlier this year, like early in the summer, you know, one of our clients reached out to say, you know, I reread the piece. How much of this is applicable? So in late August, I kind of reassessed those 10 factors. And, and what surprised me, because I hadn't thought about it so much with all that's kind of gone on this year, thinking about what's the long term, was how many of those factors were sort of still applicable. And therefore, I think this thesis that there is a sort of secular bull case scenario for the U.S. economy for the rest of this decade, again, was getting not nearly maybe as much attention as, as people should be thinking about. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk, cover some of the factors, but that's kind of the premise is to like, like let's step back and, and think like what's really kind of going on that doesn't maybe get as much attention in the day-to-day news flow. Yeah. And, and I guess you, you had this longer term trend of growing inequality uh, and sort of wage pressures at the high end where the, the sort of, you could say, we're, we're not participating. Talk about that dynamic and what makes what what you see today is 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 that catch up happening? Is it going to continue to happen? What what are those factors? Well, with the data that would show you know for real wage growth, say across different income tiers from low, middle to high, and you can go back to two thousand. Like you can even go back to like the early nineteen eighties. What you'd see over you know a, a long time period is that real wage growth, for, at least for low income workers, was essentially stagnant when you adjust for inflation but it was growing much more rapidly for higher-income workers. And as a result of that, you know, this was one of the factors that was sort of driving, you know, income inequality. You know, the top people were, were doing well. The rest weren't sort of benefiting from, from overall economic growth. From a macroeconomic perspective, this kind of matters because, you know, we know empirically that people on the lower-tier income levels, their sort of propensity to spend additional income is quite high. You know, for every dollar of income they get, they might spend 80 to 90 cents, whereas for people on the very top tiers, for every additional dollar, they might be spending you know, 10 cents. So just thinking about if you want to stimulate demand in the economy, you know, this is why like stimulus checks during the pandemic, you know, going to lower income workers ended up you know, fueling aggregate demand so much. So this had been a problem you know, for, from an overall macro perspective, a, a challenge. There's also kind of the questions of fairness and equality, which is, you know, gets into like more you know, outside of the realm strictly of economics. But if you're just looking at it from an economic lens, this is one of the reasons why when people look at the last decade, like pre-pandemic, where it was just lower for longer environment of low growth, low inflation, low rates. You know, this term secular stagnation was used to describe it. One of the arguments for suggesting why that was occurring was because of income inequality. What we saw right before the pandemic is if you actually looked at wage growth among, again, the different tiers, you were finally starting to see faster wage growth for people at the bottom tier. Like, you know, wage growth was picking up, but it was picking up most relevant for those people at the bottom of the, the income spectrum, which would be positive for them, but also in some way positive in terms of amplifying kind of growth in the economy. What we've seen post-pandemic, obviously, is, is wage growth is elevated. And we saw, again, this morning, the data came out that uh, on a year-over-year basis, average wage growth is 5%. But if you break it out across tiers, it's going to be even higher than that, like 6 7%, if not more, for, for lower-income workers. Now, we focus a lot on the fact that, well, that's not as high as inflation, uh, and, and that's true. So, like, real wages are actually negative. This is one of the reasons why there's challenges to the economy right now. If you want to put the more optimistic lens on it, say, well, more recently over the past few months, wage growth is actually higher than inflation. So it's on a year-over-year measure, inflation or wages look like they're shrinking, but on a month-over-month basis, 
consumers are starting to kind of regain some of their, their spending power. If this continues, and it continues that the distribution is such that the lower-income workers are growing more rapidly, this, if it persists for, for a while, uh, and I, you know, it would be good if it did, this could also help to reverse gradually and slowly some of this you know, inequality that took place for many years. So aside from you know, the benefits that might accrue to those people in the lower tier, just from a purely economic perspective, if their income is growing faster, it means overall consumption can the economy can grow faster. It means demand can be higher. And that ultimately in some way is a positive because um, lack of demand is one of the reasons why growth was so anemic for, for the pre-pandemic decade. And I think in, throughout this conversation, I think we'll try to bring back some combination of the there's the economy, and then there's the markets and corporate profits and all the rest. But on you know one of the questions on how wage growth translates to companies in, in corporate America, you know there's been this idea that profit margins were very very high peak. You know, are you getting to peak profit margins for all sorts of factors? But one is sort of the, the returns to capital versus the returns to labor. Is is this going to be one of the things in your view that's going to shrink profit margins? Are there other things happening? And we're going to get into economic productivity and all sorts of things, but any view on how this is going to translate to companies' bottom lines? So I think just big picture, you think about um, you know, the economy versus the markets, and oftentimes people will lump them together. The, the, the market should follow the economy, but oftentimes they diverge quite significantly. And I think, again, if we look at the past decade, you had a slow growth economy you know, that wasn't really benefiting a lot of people from a, from a labor income perspective, but it's a really good market for like, you know, equities. You know, over the past decade, pre-pandemic, they were up you know, 14% annualized. So what is good for the economy isn't necessarily going to be immediately good for equities and vice versa. So there is a, an argument to be made that, well, if workers regain some income, does that squeeze margins? And so they benefit, and the economy may be better, better overall, but it's actually not good for corporate margins. And that is a possibility. This comes down to a kind of a question that I think investors right now are debating. If this persists, do companies have enough pricing power to pass those on and keep the margins elevated? Thus far, you know, at least through the second quarter, the data we have is, says they can. Starting next Friday, we'll start to get third quarter earnings season. We'll get another glimpse into is this starting to, you know, to chip away or not. You know, there's that dynamic. There's an overarching dynamic also is that the productivity gains, right? So you can have higher wage growth if you also have higher productivity. A very simple way to think about it in the economy is that if, say, if, if wages are growing, you know, 4%, but there's 2% productivity growth, well, then inflation should be 2% because, you know, you can, you know, 2% of the, in the wage growth is productivity gains. So you're more efficient. So you only have to pass 2% of the wage growth on to goods. So one of the key things that people are looking for is signs of productivity, you know, picking up. And if we go again pre-pandemic, there was a lot of discussion, like, why is productivity so low? Like, this is, it's sort of stagnating. It's, it's barely 1% a year. It started to pick up kind of late in the last, you know, at the end of the last, last cycle. It accelerated during the early stages of the pandemic, you know, because we still had a lot of goods being produced where you can get productivity gains, where the, the number of people working had shrunk quite a bit. So in 2020, 2021, big productivity gains. What we're seeing this year in the data is like productivity is actually negative because a lot of that is due to people coming back, but in service industries, which tend not to have the same kind of productivity gains. What I, you know, kind of mentioned in the note though is that. You know, there is the scope for, for broader productivity development over the next five to 10 years because you're starting to see companies continue to invest in capital. You know, they can't find workers, so you have to substitute capital for labor. We really didn't have a CapEx cycle that took place, you know, for the previous decade. It's been 15 years, really, since there's been a real sustained CapEx cycle. Uh, so companies are looking to invest, give workers essentially more capital. And if they have more capital, we know it's kind of from the data, they tend to be more productive. There's also the implementation of like digital technologies and the digital transformation that was taking place pre-pandemic. But I think what the pandemic showed is that, you know, you can unleash different business models that didn't exist before or people didn't believe could work, that people could work remote. They could do things, you know, in different ways that, you know, you're more efficient. And all this technology is only now being fully deployed and business models are also being built around it that kind of take advantage of it. So this isn't something that you see in one quarter, two quarters, even one or two years to kind of really show up in the data, but it can show up over the course of five to 10 years. So in the initial piece that I wrote last fall, and I kind of mentioned it again, you know, in the, in the one in August, is that there's a lot of focus on stagflation, 1970s. And one of my points is that, well, we could actually, the right benchmark might be the 1990s. Because in 1994, the Fed raised rates 300 basis points. Um, it was able to engineer a soft landing. They started cutting in 1995. We may have some sort of parallel this time. Rapid hikes this year. By the end of next year, cutting. 
And then we all know like what happened in the last half of the 1990s. It was a dot-com era, huge investments, huge productivity gains, this productivity miracle. I think there's, a, there's definitely the potential for something along those lines of being sort of repeated. And if that happens, well, then you can have higher wage growth, but also corporate you know, margins stay sustained. That's the best of all worlds. And then you can get both the economy doing better, but also equities doing better. The challenge in all this is that productivity is really hard to predict. I mean, like it's, it's really difficult. So these are more conjectures than definitive yeah. models and analysis. But I think there's, that, that's a scenario that exists that I think is being sort of completely sort of downplayed as a, as a possibility today. We're talking with Jason Jarrah, who's head of asset allocation Americas at UBS. Uh, Jason, this is exactly part of the conversation we wanted to have here because I mean, this is something that Professor Siegel's been pointing out on our show week after week, and he talks about all these workers being hired. He's like, "What are these workers doing? Um, you got all these hiring workers, and you got declining GDP in the first half of the year, productivity at fifty-year dreadful declines." Is like so. Then he's sort of questioning: Are they mismeasuring the hours worked? Are they mismeasuring output? Don Cohn came on the show and he thought they were going to revise GDP higher. Uh, Siegel says, well, maybe these uh, this laptop class, uh, like myself working from home, is, is actually sort of uh, goofing off and not doing as much work. And, and I said, I, I'm working way more than I used to work, I got to say. I mean, I work pretty hard as it is. But what what do you think? Uh, so you, you, you do have this longer-term positive potential. The 90s, the 90s analogy, very interesting. What, what do you think? Well, in terms of the data... You know, it's a, I think it's it's a real challenge for statisticians who construct GDP statistics, even like labor market data, to deal with the fact that we've gone through an incredible event that's distorted everything for two years of the pandemic. So just thinking about like seasonal adjustments that you know you try to smooth the data, there's always patterns throughout the year. The pandemic began in March of 2020. Everything was really locked down in April and then started to open up kind of from there on. So any data that looks at March or April year over year data was is kind of being distorted. And if you think about even the, the inflation dynamic, inflation was running below 2% up through April of last year. And then for in early May of last year, we got the April data and it suddenly went from like 1.7% to 4.1%. That reflected, again, more of a year-over-year piece. And I see all this because you're trying to measure in real time what's going on in the economy, which is difficult in the best of situations. But now you have all these distortions, like, well, how do you make adjustments for it? So it will, could take two, three years when statisticians kind of go back and look at the data, they have more information, and they kind of fill it in and realize, like, oh, maybe GDP growth in the first quarter or the first half of this year wasn't negative or wasn't negative as much as we anticipated. We just got recently some revisions for, uh, you know, uh, for first half data in terms of income, because you can measure production, like GDP, gross domestic product, but also gross national income. And they should align over time. And there's been, there was big discrepancies. And we saw adjustments that have bring them closer in line. I think that revision process is going to take place continuously for the next couple of years, which means any of the data we're getting right now, I think any of it you have to kind of take with a bigger grain of salt than normal just because of those, those measurement challenge. Now, that said, you know, I think part of what happened in the first half of this year is a bit of a give back from some of the productivity gains we got in 2020 and 2021, which were probably unsustainable because some of those numbers were coming to like 4% productivity growth. You know, if we get one and a half to 2%, that's a really good outcome. We're not going to get 4%. So a few years from now, when we kind of look back, what was the average productivity growth over time? I think it was elevated in the pandemic. The question is, are the investments taking place right now? Will that lead to higher productivity ongoing? So I think that's the more important question as opposed to some of the noise and the data right now. And to me, you know, the, you know, what's still going on is companies are still investing. Just a single data point I'll mention. Last week, we got um, durable goods orders for, I think it was for August. The core durable goods surprised to the upside. This is critical as you're seeing companies continue to invest, even in an environment where there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of recession risk. They still believe this is kind of mission critical uh, to, to you know, transform their business, for whether it could be sustainability matters, energy transition, or just realizing we have to do things differently because we can't get the workers. So I look at some of that saying, like, this hasn't moderated. And anecdotes from companies, by and large, would still suggest they are moving forward with investment. They'll only cut if they really believe there's going to be a significant slowdown in growth next year, which is a possibility. But so far, so good in terms of their commitment to investing. And maybe to wrap the first half of our conversation, uh, on this investment, uh, you did talk about one of the things that could be positive is this CapEx boom potentially. Is How much is the rising interest rates, rising cost of capital you think could slow that? 
Um, where do you see the greatest need for CapEx? I'm sort of tying into the other thing, news of the day. Uh, maybe they're in a really, maybe you want to separate them, but sort of rising oil. A lot of people say there was so much underinvestment in CapEx and oil is creating the issues we have today. Do you, do you think that is going to change as well? So I think I'll take it in three parts. First, you know, the question about you know, rising interest rates, is that discourage investment? And you would think, you know, like, well, you know, if it costs more for to borrow and to invest, therefore you get less investment. But one of the interesting, you can call it sort of a puzzle in economic data, is that you could take many years of economic, you know, investment data going back 50 years, and if you say what's the relationship between interest rates, and the correlation is close to zero, if anything, it might be slightly negative. Which is like, well, how is this possible? Rates are higher, the cost of borrowing it goes up, shouldn't investment fall? And the reason it's I think negative is that. Interest rates usually rise when the economy is doing well. So the Fed is raising rates to the global economy, which means demand is strong, which means companies need to invest. Uh, and so I think what it tells us is that ultimately the key driver for investment is what is the demand. And if demand is strong, companies will invest. It kind of gets into the animal spirits argument that, you know, if you feel like this is a good time, you will invest. You know, I, I can't meet all demand. I'll go ahead. My cost of borrowing goes up. But if these are even if it's a few percentage points, that can pale in comparison to if you think your sales demand could go up by 10 or 20%. So I think that's, that's one thing. Higher rates, you know, not great, but I don't think that's a factor that's really going to drive the investment store. It's more of, will demand stay strong? And if, if the Fed really wants to crush demand to kind of bring down inflation, well, that creates a risk that companies say, well, the demand's not going to be there. So I think that's the first point. The second is that you have to look in context of, of what is the sort of investment story for, for many years. And from really from the financial crisis up until the pandemic, there had been a lack of investment. And you could see it in data for S&P 500 companies measuring, you know, what was their CapEx spending and what was their depreciation. And really what companies were basically just investing enough just to cover the depreciating assets, maybe a little bit more. So they really weren't investing for, for new growth. So what we have now is a capital stock in the U.S. that if you sort of measure it on like a median age, it's something like you know, 26 years. It's the oldest it's been in, in decades. So we just have a capital stock that has been underinvested, needs replacement. We are seeing that at the fiscal level, the federal government with the infrastructure package last year, uh, even you know, the Chips and Science Act, and then the Inflation Reduction Act, some of the investments for energy. So I think you're seeing public support, but you're also seeing companies say, you know, we just haven't invested. There's demand. We're running short of capacity. We have to kind of continue moving forward. And that's a, even more of a, call it like a cyclical story. The third piece kind of addresses your comment about like, you know, energy and the price of oil. Now, there's just structural trends that are taking place that I think companies realize we need to invest for long-term trends. Some of it is the energy dynamic of gridding you know, energy security, energy independence, uh, and having more secure lines of energy, uh, whatever form it might take. So you're, you're reinforcing those, those supply chains and sources of energy. You know, a lot of talk about sort of this deglobalization concept. Um, and I think there's, like, you know, sometimes it gets maybe a little overblown if it's exactly what's happening. But first with, you know, the, you know, the trade war between U.S. and China going back three or four years ago, then to the pandemic, and now with the war in Ukraine, I think companies realize, you know, we just need to have more secure supply chains. Whether that means, you know, bringing production back to the U.S., whether it means bringing, you know, nearshoring to like Mexico, Canada, or or let's say more friendly regimes, I think you're seeing companies kind of building in resilience and realizing for many years we focused on efficiency, you know, sort of just-in-time investment, which was good for profitability, but now we need, you know, resiliency because ultimately if we don't get supply, it doesn't really matter anything else. We need, we need to have that sort of that, that going on. So you, you weigh all these factors in, you know, from the lack of sensitivity to interest rates to the kind of cyclical need for investment to these structural long-term trends, all that points to companies uh, continuing to, to invest. It may moderate a little bit over the next year, given the economic dynamics playing out. But I think they're all would suggest companies need to invest. And the benefits of that investment take years to kind of to bear free rate. This is not something that happens, you know, like in three, six months or 12 months that you see, oh, we've built a factory, we can start producing. It can take, you know, companies to build like five years to, you know, open up a semiconductor plant in, in Arizona, for example. So I think we have to take a long-term lens as we look at all this stuff. We're going to continue this conversation. It's going to be very. It's a lot of great start to this uh, conversation with Jason Draho of UBS, head of asset allocation. We're talking about some of the optimistic, some of the views that could be supportive for the economy getting past the stagflation. Maybe the nine, not the not the seventies, but maybe the nineties. Uh, Jason, this is a very interesting take. Uh, Jason, one of the things that you talked about in in this piece was things about 
the sentiment for uh, risk taking, the formation of new businesses and capital deployment for some of that. Uh, talk about those environments. How is that contributing to the potential for the economy here? So it's interesting. You'd think maybe like during a pandemic or recession, people or potential recession, and certainly we had one, you know, at the start of the pandemic, that people would get sort of more risk averse and not want to take risk. In some way, like the data would suggest that the opposite has happened. Um, one simple example is if you look at you know new business formation in the U.S. Prior to the pandemic, the monthly average is around three hundred thousand new businesses created uh, on average every month, and and you know they'd been ticking up a little bit. You know, gradual trend, you know, pre-pandemic. Once the you know the first few months of the pandemic were over, kind of in the, in the second half of 2020, that number surged from 300,000 to about 450,000, and it stayed at a relatively elevated level since then. Even uh, in the summer, we were still in the range of around 425,000 new businesses being created on average every month, which is 40% higher than it was in, in the pre-pandemic period. Now, a lot of those businesses might be, you know, people quitting their job and they kind of put up a shingle outside the house and say, I'm doing this, and that could be a new business. It's not all like large companies. But the fact that there was such a big, discrete change, you know, suggests people are willing to be a little bit more entrepreneurial, take risks. I think you know, psychologically, the pandemic for a lot of people sort of said, you know, I was doing something. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to change and maybe take, you know, sort of some risk in my life, realizing, you know, that we can't sort of take things for granted. So you're seeing that kind of activity. Another example is people willing to kind of quit their job and go somewhere else. You know, a lot of cases it's because, you know, they can get, you know, higher income, higher wages somewhere else. But, uh, you know, those what, you know, you're seeing people willing to kind of take those chances, start new opportunities uh, and quit rates that were, you know, are still elevated above, you know, typical long term averages. So people are willing to kind of quit their job, take a risk and go somewhere else. Even in small business surveys, where the sentiment in some ways is very pessimistic, you know, from the National Federation of Independent Business. But if you start to kind of look at the details, what people are complaining about is like, you know, supply chains are still up challenge. They can't hire the workers, but no one is complaining or very few people are complaining about, you know, the demand. There's, so there's still a demand. Um, and so even there, people are willing to invest, you know, because there's a demand. They just, they're kind of frustrated about the difficulties of sort of meeting that demand. So when you look at all that, there's, there's this sort of in some way, a dynamism and a risk-taking culture right now that's been going on that really wasn't evident in the prior pandemic period. If you go back the last 30 years, one of the things that you know people were writing about, you know, five years ago, you know, in the middle, you know, 2015, was that there seemed to be a bit of lack of dynamism in the U.S. economy. You compare it to the 1990s, where things were kind of really felt like they were, you know, there's a lot of activity, a lot of new opportunities. Over a 20-year period, that seemed to kind of be going in the other direction. It was the economy was becoming more stagnant. There's clearly been some change uh, since the pandemic began. How long that will persist, it's an open question, but it's almost like there's a step change or a structural change that will look back historically and say the pandemic marked a pre and post environment. And what's helping, or at least certainly was helping for, for a long period of time, is that access to capital, kind of growth capital to fund new businesses was very abundant. Uh, you can see that in sort of venture capital data, obviously in public markets when interest rates you know, were, were close to zero, access to capital was, was still very abundant. With the Fed raising rates, that's cool, certainly some of it. But the data we can see up to even into the third quarter for venture capital financing, it, it declined certainly from elevated levels late last year, but it's still above levels of like from 2019 and even early in, you know, in 2020. So that may curtail further. But I think we're still in this culture of where people are looking for, for growth opportunities. They look at all the transformation taking place. People want to be kind of where that, where the future is going. So those people are willing to take those risks. You know, there's still capital available. I think what happened over the past year and a half, once the Fed started moving towards a more, a more hawkish stance, was the frothiness has been taken out and some of the more speculative capital has been gone. But for good business models and for good business opportunities, you know, I think there's still money to to for invest or investors still have money to give to, to business people. So this is to me is like another kind of piece of this whole optimistic scenario is that there's a lot of, there's more willingness to invest in these opportunities and to fund it. Uh, and ultimately they're going to bear fruit. And again, this is probably not a two year story. It's more of a five to 10 year story. Yeah. You've seen certainly the, you could say that the, the growthiest segment of the markets under the most pressure in the last 12 months with rates moving. And you guys have a, at UBS have a global vision to everything happening from both, you know, the investment banking, seeing what kind of deal appetite there is, a big client base of, of private wealth type uh, money. Do you, do you see the, the appetite changing in any way? Are, are clients wanting to put less of that to work? Or do you think there's just so much money now that's been committed and some of that will still become committed that that's not going to change in, in, in the short run? So I don't think it's going to change in the short run. You know, there's a 
if you look at sort of equity capital markets as an example, there's been an evolution for 25 years um, where it used to be all the public markets. And we think about the late 1990s during the dot-com era, the number of IPOs on average from, let's say, like 1995 or 1994 to 2000 was somewhere in the neighborhood of like you know, 500 uh, you know, a year, like a really large number. And companies, especially by the end of that you know, dot-com bubble period was, you know, they would be two years old, maybe three years old, and they were already going public. You know, they'd get a couple of rounds of venture capital financing. They'd get their next, you know, money from from the public markets. That changed, you know, some of it due to regulation. Some of it is, you know, the change of the industry. What we saw, we go back to, say, 2019, some of these unicorns, you know, well-known, like, you know, the Ubers of the world, the Airbnbs, they started going public in 19, 20, 21. These were companies that had been around for 10 years, had multiple, like five, six, seven rounds of funding. Over the 20-year time period is that venture capital, kind of the growth segment, had just really exploded. Like There's just much more money for companies to be able to kind of stay private for longer. You even start to see big traditional fund managers going into the private markets because they wanted access to these companies because they, they weren't getting them in the, in the public markets. Traditional private equity sort of branched out to growth equity because they can't just buy traditional public companies and you know that are kind of old line industries, you know, restructure them and do them that way. So the capital available for the whole spectrum of equity from early stage to, to you know to growth to public markets, that is there's been a structural change that's not going to you know change anytime soon. So when we talk to our clients, we think about well, how do you want to construct a portfolio? This goes back to asset allocation. You can't just be in some way limited to public markets because there's a lot of opportunities out there that exist only in private markets. In some cases, they have more attractive risk and return opportunities. And when we think about what's the right allocation they should have, which is still on the modest side, it's not a large allocation, most of our clients are still well short of that. So I think if they even meet, I think, you know, the targets we're talking about, that's still a lot of capital needs to be deployed to these asset classes, which as it happens, I think that kind of flows into the, the my point earlier about there's still a lot of capital available for these kind of companies in ways that they couldn't get it before. And private markets in some way are becoming more, much more liquid compared to 20 years ago. It's an area that people can access and provide capital um, and that goes down to people that wouldn't have got it otherwise. And this to me is a structural change that's not going to reverse anytime soon. If anything, it's going to continue on that direction. Now, one of the pieces that I think you wrote uh, a few years ago, but but outlined, I think, a framework you think for the marks, I think it's so tied to the, the current discussion of the Fed and, and how you think about asset allocation generally, is to talk around what is the neutral rate and sort of neutral rate for the economy, neutral rate of interest. Um, let me turn over to you to just describe the the general piece, how you use it, and then let's get into what we think some of these neutral rates are, where we are in that cycle. So the, the neutral rate concept is it's, it's a bit academic, but the idea behind it is that if the economy were at this neutral level, this sort of steady state level, it could continue to grow continuously over time without inflation getting too high. So it's a level where inflation is neither accelerating or decelerating. You're at sort of somewhat full employment or an employment level where again inflation doesn't accelerate. And then sort of growth is near its long-term trend. And we know that sort of growth ultimately over time is determined by two factors, productivity, which we talked about earlier, and the growth in the labor force. So in simple terms, imagine, you know, the economy can grow because you have more workers producing widgets and they have technology that allows them to boost more widgets per hour. That's why you get economic growth. So long-term kind of, you know, sort of the, the steady state or trend rate of growth is basically what is your population growth of the workforce? What is the productivity growth? Estimates of that range from like 1.75% to 2%. Let's keep it simple. Say it's 2% is sort of the trend grade of, of growth for the U.S. economy. And then, you know, the Fed sort of targets 2% as inflation. And then you think about what's the rate of interest that the Fed policy rate has to get you there. And the Fed would say it's around 2.5% is your neutral Fed funds rate. If everything was in balance, you would sort of grow that steady level kind of continuously. When we did these pieces a few years ago, obviously a very different environment. The issue then was the Fed had loose policy and was gradually raising interest rates. And in 2018, they were trying to get towards what they deemed to be neutral policy after being at essentially zero interest rates for many years. So they ultimately about 2.5% in December of 2018. So there's a lot of discussion at that point in time, well, what is neutral? You know, how far can they raise rates before slowing the economy? Um, and now it still matters because as the Fed you know, at 3%, you know, they're likely to do 75 basis point hike in early November. That would take the Fed funds rate to, you know, 375 to 4%. That starts to become quite a bit above the 2.5%. But these numbers that I'm talking about, 2.5% for a Fed funds rate, 2% for kind of trend growth, these are estimates. No one knows. We can't observe them in any data or on the markets, but we have estimates what they, they could be. But these are 
best noisy estimates. So for the Fed, if they think it, you know, the neutral rate is two and a half percent, the further you go above that, the more restrictive it is, the more the economy could slow. But there are debates that are taking place to say, well, that two and a half percent for the Fed funds rate, that's too low because with inflation high, policy rates on real term are still negative. So someone could argue like, well, policy is still actually um, you know, negative because actual, once you adjust for inflation, it's they're negative. You know, therefore, they have to go beyond even the 4%. Maybe they have to go to 5%. Again, these get into questions like, what are these numbers? We don't know. The Fed doesn't know. It tries to have a framework to think about it. But it's a little bit like you're, you, know, you walk into a dark room and it takes your eyes time to adjust. And even at best case scenario, you're still kind of fumbling around a little bit. And hopefully you can turn on the light in time before stubbing your toe. Or in this case, kind of crashing over a box. Like think of that as the economy. But that's, that's the challenge is figuring out what is that sort of um, – where do you need to go and how much can you slow growth? You think about you know, what the Fed's trying to do. It wants to bring growth below 2%. Because to do that, well, then you sort of cool the economy. You can bring inflation down. Hopefully, you can ease the labor market and bring wage growth down to a level that's more sustainable. But to try and kind of thread the needle of having growth at, say, 1% you know, percent or between 0 and 1%, so it's not a recession, versus tipping to recession, that's a really hard thing to do when all you really have is pretty blunt instruments like, like you know, raising the policy rate for a really complicated economy. But that's why you hear I talk about the neutral rate, whereas neutral, it's all around trying to calibrate policy around that and steer the economy back towards neutral. But we don't actually know exactly what those neutral levels are. So it's, you know, we have an objective, but we don't know exactly where the target is. And that, that's what makes this whole thing very complicated. We're talking with Jason Dreho, who is head of asset allocation at UBS. Jason, the professor is on the view, Professor Siegel is on the view that the neutral is much lower than the Fed says, that uh, the real rate could be, he thinks we're actually pretty in restrictive territory at the moment. Uh, and and he points to the tips yield curve being positive. We've had 200 base points increase across the tips curve so that we are in positive real rate territory. Uh, do you think it could? Do you think he's being too aggressive? That it's you know that we are restrictive today. I mean, what do you, when you form your views of how tactical to get on, are we in a you know restrictive territory? How, how do you think about that? So if you look at what the market is pricing for inflation, you know, starting like you know two, three, four, five years down the line for like the rest of the decade, we're getting to levels that are sort of back to those pre-pandemic levels where it was kind of lower growth, lower inflation, lower rates for longer. So it's we're getting to the point where the markets might even start to fear if the Fed keeps going aggressively without dialing back that they're going to over-tighten, we're going to have a deeper recession, and then we kind of go back to what it was before. Uh, and, you know, we don't since we don't know exactly where the policy is, the greater the risk, that adds uncertainty, so the more they go, the greater the risk it turns out they actually overshooted much more than they anticipated. There's another school of thought um, or kind of complexity to this dynamic that, that while the Fed is the U.S. central bank, it is actually the global central banker, whether it wants that role or not. And back in 2018, when the Fed did raise rates to 2.5%, which these are the estimates we think are, are neutral in the U.S., we know at the end of that year, stocks sold off dramatically in December before kind of recovering. In early 2019, the Fed essentially pivoted by, I think Powell said something to the effect that we we're probably going to pause and the markets immediately took that. Well, at some point, they're going to cut rates. Uh, Globally, there was stresses for other reasons, including like the, you know, the U.S. trying to take tensions. There was a government shutdown. But there was an argument that as the global central bank, the global sort of neutral rate is less than it is in the U.S. So let's just say if the U.S. is 2.5%, globally, any time the Fed gets over 1.5%, then it starts to become restrictive globally. And we're kind of seeing that a little bit play out with the currency, the U.S. dollar appreciating dramatically. So demand for U.S. dollars and U.S. dollar assets. We know for at least emerging markets, they fund a lot of their investments uh, or, or their, their spending through through dollars. Transactions take place through dollars. So it goes back to, I think it was the, um, you know, the Treasury sector under under Nixon said, like, well, it's our dollar, but it's your problem to some extent. So raising these rates could slow the global economy. As the global economy slows, even though we're somewhat isolated because we're not a major kind of global trade exporter import, it's not like we're not as open as, say, the, the German economy, it's going to spill back into the U.S., so what we saw recently, um, you know, with the UK, the situation there, where their, their guilt yields were rising dramatically, the Bank of England had to intervene. That yield went up 10% or 1% in about a week. It caused the US 10-year, 10-year Treasury to go up about 30 basis points in one day. So these spillovers can come in. And the further the Fed goes, the more challenging it will be for the rest of the world, the more that's going to flow back to here. So I think the Fed has an idea of what is neutral in the U.S., but it may be overestimating that level on a global perspective. And, and while it doesn't necessarily want the responsibility globally, its mandate is the U.S., it can't ignore it. And there is a risk that they, they kind of over-tighten from a global perspective, and we get a bit of a re- replay of what we happened in 2018.
Hopefully not. Hopefully they've kind of, you know, can be more calibrated. But I think there is a risk if they just kind of keep plowing ahead uh, without sort of taking all these things into consideration, uh, that that risk of, of them kind of going too far and leading to hard landing goes up. Yeah, that what happened in England and, you know, they, they put these temporary relief measures. The bank even talked about this, the, the, that liability driven investment. They now have wrote a letter talking about that. That was really why they stepped into the market. And, and the question is, are they actually going to be able to get out of it you, 10 days after they said they're putting this in? We got a few minutes left and we've talked very much about high level economic trends and sort of this more optimistic take. I, you know, for investors who are listening to, you know, you start off the conversation saying, economy and the markets, how are they interrelated? How do we take all of this view into, and you said for you know your clients, you'd want to get them to have a 30-year horizon. Uh, given what you're seeing in stock and bond markets, you know the 60-40 is sort of one of the most popular asset allocations. What's your take on the 60-40 long run, short run uh, in our final two to three minutes? So let's start with the short run. The framework that I've kind of used to think about the markets this year is that as long as inflation is you know, far above the 2% sort of target, as long as the labor market is quite tight and the data you know, today is kind of reinforces that it's still quite tight, you will have a Fed that wants to slow the economy below the long-term trend, bring down inflation, and it does that by raising rates and tightening financial conditions, meaning stock prices, you know, bond prices have to come down. And that's been the story this year. As long as that's the case, as long as the Fed has that sort of that perspective, and we've had Fed speakers this week that have continued to kind of reinforce that point, it's a challenge in the very near term. Uh, so it's a very volatile market. We think it's kind of more range-bound. Um, so it's difficult to make strong calls like, yes, now's the time to buy, now is it, now's the time to sell, because you can see even earlier this week, in two days, the S&P was basically 6% off the up the thoughts from the markets that maybe the Fed could pivot, you know, a little bit earlier than expected. So it's a very difficult, you know, sort of market. As a result, we've been sort of suggesting, like, don't make sort of, you know, you know, don't try and be a hero. Don't swing for the fence. Think about your long-term strategic allocation. Make small sort of, you know, you know, tilts here and there. Like we like value stocks more so than growth. We have liked commodities. But then if you take the long-term perspective, you know, something I've been sort of emphasizing very recently to our clients is that there's value being created. You know, just think about fixed income. You can buy safe fixed income or relatively safe fixed income and get yields of like four, five, six percent without taking a lot of interest rate risk or credit risk. Yep. It's been 15 years since that could happen. So there's opportunities there. In equities, we talked about the UK. You might think, well, why would I want to go in the UK? It looks like, you know, a bit of a you know, disaster right now. But UK equities, their forward multiple is 10. And this is a a, um, in a stock market where 70% of the earnings come outside the UK, uh, it's a defensive-oriented market. But if you can look at the noise, that's a cheap market. Small cap stocks in the U.S. typically trade at a premium to large cap. Right now, it's at about a 30% discount. So there's been value created, I think, for long-term investors who can deal with volatility in the next three, six months, and you have cash to put to work. I think it's better to start trying to take advantage of those opportunities as opposed to trying to be too cute on the timing because getting a timing is really hard. Yep. But if you buy something cheap, over time it appreciates. Well, Jason, this has been a fantastic conversation. Everybody find Jason's work at UBS. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You'll be listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius 132. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 